Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Suitcase and The Scribe with award-winning journalist Scott Burnside and former NHL goaltender Mike McKenna, a member of the Nation Network of Podcasts and delivered by DoorDash. Hey everybody, Scott Burnside back for another edition of The Suitcase and The Scribe. Mike McKenna, as always, beautifully lit, ready to roll in St. Louis, Missouri. Mike, what a great! It's, I'm so excited. I'm always excited when we go to tape these, but uh, we're going to be joined later in the show by uh, my good friend uh, Emily Kaplan of ESPN. Uh, such an interesting spring for her with her new gig with ESPN between the benches, and so I feel like we see her almost every night now during the playoffs. But we're going to catch up with Emily during the show, um, and we're going to talk some NHL awards. We're going to talk uh, Game Four, the Stanley Cup Final. Very interesting. It, just before we get there, though, and I'm going off script already here, but I was so pleased to hear that you were going to spend some time with Mitch Korn, one of the great goaltending gurus in hockey, of course, at the NHL level, too, but mm-hmm. at all levels. And I saw the picture on social media of you and Mitch, and I just wanted to say I'm, I'm pleased for both of you. And what's it like to work with Mitch, who I think it's fair to say is regarded as one of the great, you know, one of the great goaltending coaches of his generation. He is one of the Mount Rushmore candidates for goalie union. Yes. And I mean, we've talked about within goalie circles, how we really can't believe that a goalie coach hasn't made the hockey hall of fame, given how much of an impact they've made to the game. And I think the first one everybody thinks of is Francois Allaire um, revolutionizing things, being a full-time goalie coach in Montreal with Patrick Waugh and bringing in the butterfly. And then you go down the list and you've got Mitch Korn, uh, Ian Clark's in that mix, who's in Vancouver. I mean, it, There's some people who have been massively influential to this game. But for me, Mitch takes the cake because he travels around in the summer, runs these goalie camps all throughout the United States. And we call it the children of the corn. There are there might be tens of thousands of children of the corn at this point over the 30 years that he's been doing these camps, 35, 40 years. And it's this oddball, tight knit community. And the coolest thing for me, though, is that I was drafted by Nashville and I've known Mitch for 20 years now. That was 2002. And I can still remember sitting in our coach's office at St. Lawrence when Mitch and Nashville Predators by proxy wanted to talk to me after a game against Cornell. And that was the start of our relationship. And even though uh, Nashville didn't believe in me enough to sign me, and that's a running joke between us, um, <laughs> we've, we've stayed really close because I worked camps for him for years and have continued to. And, uh, and this year I even got back on the ice because I had a little bit of time and he honestly, my life and my career doesn't happen without Mitch. 
And wow. there's so many people that can say that. There's a lot of us. Yeah. And he's a really special person and mentor and someone that through my career, I would I just call him out of nowhere when things were going right, wrong, anything. And he always had time. So um, it warmed my heart knowing that you guys go back a decent ways too. And I think we're both just chomping at the pit for the, at the bit for the moment that Mitch can finally sit down and look back and reflect on his career because he has so much to offer. Um, But he really cannot speak about it right now (laughs) as a, as an Islanders employee. So um, yeah, it was great. And so he sends his regards to you, Scott, I'm really looking forward to hearing um, the interview with Emily Kaplan, because I think that as this year's gone on, she's really embraced that role and been able to ask some some meaningful questions yeah. of coaches and players and been able to, you know, roll with the punches when they don't give you much and move on. So looking forward to that. But we do, man, we have a lot of stuff going. This is an exciting week because we have the awards. We have game four taking place. Like There's still a lot going on and it's almost July, Scott. So, um, you know, I was I was intrigued last night um, watching the NHL awards at some of the the choices. And I'm just going to toss you this question to see which one of any of them may have surprised you. Let's lead with that. Did any of the NHL awards last night maybe catch you off guard a little bit? Yeah, it's a good question. And uh, my only only question to start with the award, why couldn't they find a mic that reached up to the, everyone at the, when they came out onto the center of the screen, but anyway, <laughs> yeah, that's thought of that. <laughs> I, I will say just as a complete aside on the awards, um, uh, I, I thought Steve Mayer, who does all the NHL um, events, the, the, the big time events, the, these are all Steve Mayer's babies. Mm. And I thought his choice or his group's choice of the presenters, people who came out, um, Jake Tebow is a young hockey player who was uh, paralyzed after an injury. I think it was in 2021. Um, Chris Snow, who I've known for a long, long time, um, back in the day when he was um, a hockey scribe and uh, went into management and um, his, you know, very um, public and, and I hate to use the word brave because I think it's over overused, but his, his, openness about talking about ALS and, and what his family has been going through through for the last mm-hmm. couple of years. And to see the family come out and present last night, I just thought that was, um, you know, the, the, the e-bug goalie who finished up the season in, you know, in the game for Anaheim against Dallas, I just thought it was really meaningful to, to have people who are connected to the game and whose stories really resonate and are really powerful to be part of what is a really important night for the NHL. So I, I so I'm going to answer your question, but I, I, I wonder what you thought of that, but I thought that was a really, I thought that was a really poignant part of the night. Oh, that stuff all matters. It's cool to be able to tie in, you know, and I mean, Chris, no, what an amazing person, like in terms of, you know, not just his, his will, but also his tenacity in trying to, make things better for everybody with what he has, you know, like this isn't, this isn't the same world that Lou Gehrig lived in, you know? And so um, impressive there. And, and just, I think the NHL does a pretty good job now of trying to hit those notes. You yeah. know, I, I think they realize that this is a moment where you can bring some cool storylines in the tie in. So yeah, production wise, I was happy. I thought Keenan Thompson was fun. He's, I mean, I've watched that guy since all that, I think on Nickelodeon as a kid. So it's been, <laughs> kind of he did have the line of that. I mean, the ultimate shot in the shins for the Leafs. So, oh, right. I know. I, mean, I know. So, to show it. 
Good to see the Leafs getting an award in June. Oh, ouch. Yeah. Anyway, so I am going to get back to your question. I, I don't I don't know that I was surprised. Um, two things. I thought it was interesting that Austin Matthews uh, won both the Hart, which is voted on by the Professional Hockey Writers Association, and the Ted Lindsay, formerly the Lester B. Pearson Award, which is the Players MVP Award. Uh, the wording slightly different for each of those awards. So you know, sometimes you have a little divergence if you go back over the years, but often they're the same player. And I think that speaks to a common mindset for both the writers who cover the game uh, and the voters, well, not just the writers, but writing the voting panel um, from the PHWA and the players themselves. And I, I, I see something, you know, listen, I, I, there's always the recency bias and you look at what Connor McDavid did in the playoffs and leading the Oilers to a Western conference final for the first time since 06. Um, I, I get it, but I, this notion, Oh, there's voter fatigue. Uh, listen, Austin Matthews did 60 goals. I thought his two way game went a million miles this year. I, I, I have zero problem with the way that vote unfolded. I'd have voted the exact same way. Um, at the top. And, uh, and I think that the players view Matthews that way, you, you know, I just think it reaffirms it. So do, do, what did you, what did you make of it? Because it is like, when you see what Austin uh, or Connor McDavid does in the playoffs, you're going, geez, you know, but it, there are two different things, right? One's a regular season award. We're talking about the playoffs. I don't know. what did you make of that? I thought it was Austin Matthews. He was my pick as a, as the heart winner. And you do have to look at the Ted Lindsay award to me as really being the ultimate it's voted on by the players and yeah. scoring 60 goals, man. It's not a, just a, because it's 60, like that's an astonishing number in today's game. It hasn't been done in over a decade. And it wasn't just that Matthews was filling the net. He still had a hunt over a hundred points and his pace was not very far off of Connor McDavid's in terms of overall point production. Yeah. And realistically, if you needed somebody on the ice to score a goal, I'd want Austin Matthews. And I think that's what the players recognize is that he's, Head and shoulders, the best sniper in the game right now, and can make a difference on a like in a you know snap your fingers and Austin, Austin Matthews makes a difference. And that's not to say Connor McDavid can't; he does. The guy's unbelievable. We realize that, but there's also five other candidates that I think were pretty, pretty damn good this year, man. Like this, this was actually a tough pick, I thought, in a lot of ways. Um, but you know, for Matthews, like you said, his two way game's way better. I'd love to see Matthews and McDavid kill penalties. You know, that, that one kind of is where Jonathan Huberdeau ratcheted up in my list. You know, Huberdeau's point total was crazy and he carried the play and killed penalties. He was everything in that grouping of people. So, um, you know, I, th I think that I wasn't very surprised by Matthews winning. I think he's very deserving. I think McDavid really was a byproduct as well of his team not being in playoffs for a lot of the season. You know, if you're the best player, your team should be in the playoffs. I, I just, no matter your supporting cast, and there was a lull there. Um, the one that caught me off guard a little bit, Scott, was the Norris. Kale yeah. McCarr winning. And yeah. it's very close vote. And admit, I voted for Roman Yossi. I thought his 96 points was, and his value to that team. Like, to me, Nashville is, it's, it's Yossi and it's Soros. Okay, I know that Duchesne and Forsberg and Johansson had resurgent years and played great, but it's Yossi and Saros. And for Makar, he has so many players with him that I think it was hard for me to look at him as being the top in that scenario. But I still think Mikhail Makar is the best defenseman and maybe the best player on earth. Like, I still believe that. Yeah. So I, 
these types of awards, man, like there's so many deserving people. Realistically, it's hard to name a best one. You know, what wasn't surprising was just jerking winning Vesna, though. (laughs) Well, and again, I'm with you because sometimes you get into these conversations and it becomes a sort of personal thing. Well, you you, you're biased or you don't like that person. Listen, we you know, you all come at this kind of vote and we are talking about the best players in the world. Uh, I'm the same way. I was a little bit surprised on the, on the Norris, not hugely surprised. I, I was, uh, I was pleasantly, I don't want to say surprised, but I guess reaffirmed. Cause I thought more Sider was um, I, I just, I just thought that he, he was the best rookie all yeah. year. And I was, you know, sometimes it's harder with defensemen though, right? It's a harder, you know, I remember back when Aaron, I think with Aaron Ekblad, it, it, you know, again, it's it's sometimes harder to get your head around what kind of impact are they making as a first year player, as a defenseman. Sometimes it's harder, and, and especially on a team that is still, you know, redefining itself, reemerging as Detroit is. And and I just I thought the voters got it right. That mm-hmm. Snyder would have been at the top of my list because he's unbelievable and what. Again, you go back to all the questions we're going to ask of teams and GMs in the next three weeks in Montreal, the draft. Why did you do this? And what you make that decision. You know, Cider is sixth overall. I don't know if you're like, do you remember as people are like, really? Like, yeah, it was off the grid. It was off the grid. It felt like at least, I mean, he was still rated highly, but not sixth. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. exactly. But I, and I love that because you're like, I mean, that's the great thing about the draft, I think, and and what leads up to it is that you have all these scouts and all at some point, someone, Steve Eiserman and his staff in Detroit, they had they make they say, what do you believe? Right. What do you mm-hmm. believe in your heart of hearts? And if you believe in your heart of hearts, the more cider is the guy. And now now he wins rookie of the year and he's huge cornerstone piece of a team that I think, you know, next couple of years is going to be interesting to see how just how far along they are, but how, what gratification in making that choice, right? When, when people time. are sometimes like, eh, I don't know. Big time. And we've, we went back and forth about this, this season quite a bit and thinking we both had cider, I think pretty high. And I, by middle of the season, I thought he's going to be the guy. And I remember our friend, Rob Shrimp, uh, who, you know, NHL player, OHL superstar, just one of the most talented players, I think, to ever play the game and not get the recognition and not get many games because he was ahead of his time. I remember Rob had a tweet a couple months ago about Cider where some fan came after Cider because, you know, one game he was like minus three or something. Yeah. And I remember Shrempy came back at this dude and he had his Cider stat line. And he had a few things circled. He had age, he had points, he had time on ice and he had power play points circled. And, you know, he's 20 years old and Shrimpy's comment was, I'm going to teach you something. See all these numbers and the things I've circled. That means that last night's game doesn't give a shit. The people in Detroit don't give a shit about last night's game. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And, and it was the most one of the most bang on tweets I've ever seen. Um, but yeah, I, just to kind of riff on Detroit very quickly there. I mean, they are they're kind of the driver's seat here, man, because they've got some big time D coming in as well. Um, another high draft pick that's going to be coming out, I believe, this year um, in Edvinson, I believe. Uh, first round sixth overall, who they're projecting to be very good. Another top defenseman like and I think, Scott, it's 
It's probably kind of a, a good transition here into what we've seen in the Stanley Cup playoffs because, man, have we not seen how much it matters to have mobile defensemen? <laughs> yeah. And what Colorado has in McCarr and Taves and when Gerard's healthy, Gerard and Bowen Byram and yep. like Eric Johnson's no slouch with the puck either. And Josh Manson's looking, <laughs> looking like a 10 goal scorer, you know, mm-hmm. like I thought through the first two games, the mobility of Colorado's defense was really the, the defining reason why they were better than Tampa. Tampa didn't look as mobile. They didn't look as fast. And part of that I thought was, was defensive core for Colorado. You know, I thought that was really what changed those two games. And then Tampa comes back in game three and flips the script. So we got a series, don't we, Scott? Well, so I'm I'm curious about how, and I couldn't agree more. And and again, we we talked. I did the preview, and you're thinking about how you don't think of Tampa that way, maybe necessarily, but such a lockdown team, and how they give up so little, and that's actually what they five were. on five. Yes, yeah. So, but you're right. You know what? They don't have. You know, I mean, when, when Kevin Chattenkirk was there two years ago, and they won the first mm-hmm. of their back to backs. You know, there's a guy who could, you know, obviously a mobile puck mover and Sergachev is, he's sort of that, but not really, right? He's not, Mm -hmm. he's not like the guys you mentioned from Colorado. So they don't really have that element. And really, I thought the the key part of of, of game three and Colorado or Tampa getting back in the series, uh, Victor Hedman was so good. Yes. And Victor Hedman is everything, right? He brings all of it, all those elements, um, but he hadn't in the first two games. But to me, he's so important for the reasons you bring up, because he helps balance that scale at least a little bit, because it's, it's a mismatch when you, when you're thinking about um, mobility on the back end and offense driven from the back end, Colorado, no one does it like Colorado, but it's really important for Hedman to continue at yeah. that level. I'll throw um, Ryan McDonough in that mix too. He struggled through games one and two, and he was very good in game three. And that's a player who just rarely struggles in games. Yeah. Okay. So I want to ask you the question and maybe it's a no brainer. Do you go, you know, the Jared Bednar who's playing the cards close to the vest, um, you know, in terms of his starter for game four, do you automatically go back to Darcy Kumper, even though Pavel Francouz is six and oh, mm. You know, and came on in relief and and played. Well, it was a mop up role. Red game was out of hand by the time he came in. But what do you make of that? I've got a piece out today at Daily Faceoff in a little while that is talking about just this topic and how. Look at us, right on topic. Yeah, I mean, we're you know promoting ourselves. It's great, shameless self promotion. But um, I, I, my belief is that Kemper's going to start Game Four. He's been the starting goalie all season long. And he had a bad game three. There's no way around it. I mean, he was down on his knees early. He wasn't tracking the puck well. Uh, He lost his goalie courage a couple times on net drives with Sorelli and Maroon's goals where he lost his angle and uh, went paddled down for no reason. He played small for a guy that's 6'5". And I think the first two games were fine. You know, again, he didn't have to find his rhythm. And I still think that it's a big question mark. Like I would have nervousness because I haven't seen the best Darcy Kemper in playoffs, but I know it's there. You know, this guy is a really good goalie. Um, So I I think he's probably got another game at him, but Jared Bednar has decisions to make. I think every day when it comes to goaltending, who starts and who finishes compared to John Cooper in Tampa Bay, 
Who has no decision to make? Not, none of that's going on. Vasilevsky could allow a dozen goals and he's staying in the game. And, yeah. and I outlined this in my piece that I would be shocked if there hasn't been a conversation between Cooper and Vasilevsky and potentially also goaltending coach Franz, Franz Jean um, in Tampa talking about their feelings on pulling goalies. Like he's yeah. been there long enough. He's built the cash. He, obviously Cooper trusts him with everything. Why wouldn't you? It's best money goalie we've seen in forever. He can bounce back from games. I would suspect they have a plan. And the plan is he's staying in <laughs> until he's hurt or until something incredibly drastic happens. That's probably what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, and that's rare though, Scott, like it's usually ultimately up to the coach. Like you may talk to your coach a bit, and try to get some feelings, but they got to make snap judgments in the moment. They don't have all the replays. They got to go on gut feel. Yeah. And, you know, Francois is, he's had some moments. He's won six games, but he hasn't been their guy. And no. that's to me what it comes down to. And that's why when, when people, people were trying to gin up a goalie controversy after game two, yeah, like, like I, I I'm watching the TV hearing people discuss whether Brian Elliott's starting game three. Okay. And I had to walk outside. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, <laughs> what planet are we living? Like we're just literally creating controversy for no reason. That's not going to happen. So, and that was squashed immediately the moment we saw warmups at game three. So, yes. um, so I, I'm asking something though, just cause it's, I'm curious, did you ever have a relationship with, with a coach along the way where you had that kind of discussion on, mm. okay, here's our plan, you know, in a series or, you know, where you had input into, uh, okay, I, I want you to take, you know, do you want to take the rest of the night off if things mm -hmm. aren't going well? Like, did you ever have that kind of, that kind of um, dialogue or that open communication where you could have that? And I, I don't disagree. I'd be shocked. If at, at to your France Jean and and Coop and uh, Vasilevsky are totally on the same page on right. all of it, including that the fact that he stayed in for all of Game Two, did, did you have that though? You know, I did with Scott Allen, who's the head coach of Hershey yeah. uh, right now. We were in a lot of cities together, and and he he knew how I felt. And I think by proxy through my goalie coaches, I, my goalie coaches always knew how I felt. Yeah. I didn't want to leave a game either. I was like Vasilevsky. Now there are the occasional moments you get five or six deep. And it's like, okay, this is time. I'm ready to come out of this game, especially in like middle of February. Yeah. Uh, if you know, you don't have it, it's, it's time to get out of there. Um, so like, I didn't have like a forceful conversation in any way with the coach. I think maybe other than, you know, Scott, we were really open with our dialogue because we're just, that's the way we work together. Um, but other ones, I typically just went through my goalie coaches and they knew my feelings. And I knew that that would get through to the staff but ultimately, man, it's up to the coaches, you know, you got to live with it and deal with it yeah. no matter what. So I learned that at a young age that it's, it's not the goalie's choice. It's the coach's choice. I'm coming out of a game. Um, I had a high school game. I didn't want to leave <laughs> and the coach was out of it. And it got to be, Oh, that was a big, uh, that was a big moment in my career of learning. So, um, but yeah, I, I, I thought it was, I think it's pretty clear between those guys. Um, what I thought was in, been really been interesting in the series, though, was how Tampa was able to break the pressure that Colorado had on them by just making a simple tactical adjustment. Like yeah. instead of trying to break out of the zone clean with two passes, they just started flipping the puck down ice and pushing back Colorado's defense. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes that's your nuclear option as a coach, but it can it can break the cycle. It can break the 
the four check, it can change up the dynamic of a game. And that's the fun part of a series for me, Scott, is to see these two coaches go back and forth to see Jared Bednar ostensibly win the first two games tactically. And then to see Coop come back and win a game three tactically, like, and, and these two coaches are both guys with winning pedigrees, man. Like Jared Bednar, he's one at the ECHL level. He's one at the AHL level. John Cooper, he's one at the NAHL, USHL, AHL. They've won everywhere before they got to the NHL and got their chances. Yet now we're seeing a bunch of recycled coaches, Scott. So what are your feelings on this? What do, you, do you think there's anything behind it right now that we're just seeing essentially retreads take jobs again? Yeah, I am, you know, like it is an interesting dynamic. And it is interesting, of course, when you look at the two coaches vying for the Stanley Cup right now and had no NHL head coaching experience, sorry, had no NHL coaching experience mm-hmm. of any kind when they first got their opportunities. You know, Jared Benner comes out of Erie, right? Yep. Uh, after Patrick Waugh abandoned the team late in the summer. Um, and uh, of course, John Cooper came up through the ranks, uh, you know, like, He's the ultimate Tampa entity, right? I mean, he's not drafted as a coach, of course, but essentially drafted and developed in that system. And now, you know, is there any question he's going to be, he's a hall of fame coach, coach, right? He's going to go to the hall of fame at some point. So, but didn't, you know, he didn't, he wasn't somebody else's coach that you brought in to fix things. And I'm, I'm of two minds for it because, and maybe it's my own emotional sort of connection. I'm a huge fan of John Tortorella. I I love that. I love that he's getting another shot. And I think it's a good fit in Philly as you and I've talked about. I I think Pete DeBoer, I know people, people are like, well, Pete DeBoer sort of boring and bland. He's the ultimate in recycling. All he does is go to the playoffs every single year. He's been to the finals, what, three times, right? Was he uh, there in Jersey there in, um, or, yeah, it was in final with San Jose and then uh, um, conference final, I guess, with Vegas. But anyway, the, all he does is go to the playoffs and never won a Stanley Cup, but he's a very good coach, I think. So is there anything wrong with that? But it, it does, I understand the frustration when you look at coaches like John Cooper and Jared Bednar, who are the other side of that ledger, right? They're guys who got an opportunity who've been toiling away and grinding it out, grinding it out. Jay Woodcroft gets a three-year extension in Edmonton. Good for mm-hmm. him. Yep. Those are, that's an important hire, I think, for Edmonton. But I don't, I don't, I'm just loath to say, oh, this is lazy or this is, you know, teams not willing to think outside the box. These are huge. They're so important. Like if you're a GM, you get what? Two, maybe three coaches, maybe. But most, basically if you're a GM, you probably get, you have two coaching cards to play. Mm. I, I, you know, like you, you, I, you can't just say, well, let's try this. Guy I like this gas. guy. I think he's the answer. You know, like, gut feel, like, I don't know, maybe you just go with it. Like I'm, I'm again, go back to Detroit and, but you know, Steve Eiserman who marches totally to his own beat. I'm, I'm really fascinated to see what he does in terms of the coach in Detroit because, and Whatever he, he can, if he hired you tomorrow, I'd be like, that's a smart move. I'm on board with that. So um, uh, I don't know, like what was, I'm curious what you think, because you, I mean, you understand that because you played on both sides, right? You played for minor pro coaches mm-hmm. who maybe never got a shot, but deserved a shot or two. You played in the NHL. Like I, I'm not offended by it. I understand why people maybe question it, 
but I just think it's too pat an answer to say, oh, it's just laziness because these are good people and good coaches that have been hired. The fact that they're veteran NHL coaches is, you know, that's just part of the equation for me. I don't know. Listen, it's no different than a player. It is really difficult to make it to the NHL and it's even harder to stay there. We've all heard that cliche before, but it's true for coaches. I mean, Dan Belsma just took a job in the American League in Palm Springs. Yep. You know, and, and this is he's not too far removed from being an NHL head coach and going to be an assistant. And like this is a situation where the writing's on the wall that you're not going to get another NHL head coaching job unless you rebuild your career a little bit. Yeah. You know, like he's got to go win an American League championship to probably get another look as an NHL head coach. And that's just reality of these situations. And if you're a coach, you've got to go where you're wanted for that. I do think, though, that when you look at Coop and Bednar, like Bednar got hired by Colorado coming right off the Calder Cup victory yep. uh, in Cleveland. And there was some familiarity there. Um, you know, you've got people within Colorado's front office that um, had familiarity that came from Colorado or from Columbus, where Jerry had worked previously. Chris McFarland is who I'm specifically thinking of, the AGM in Colorado. So that made a lot of sense. And he had some clout. Um, and same way with Coop coming off a of victory. We haven't really had an American Hockey League season for two years that was of significance. Yeah. You know, so you haven't seen the coaches, I think, take that same level of development. You haven't had the guy like it used to be that you would have a goaltender in the American League that was like the next guy for sure. Like he's going to play in the NHL next year. We all know this. Yeah. And coaches were kind of the same way. They'd get that label, Scott, and then they'd end up in the NHL. And I did want to give a quick um, a quick shout out to the American League right now that's also playing their Calder Cup finals. Um, and it is currently tied one-to-one -one in the series between the Springfield Thunderbirds, who I was on the inaugural team for years ago. And um, that's St. Louis's affiliate and yep. quite a few players that played in the NHL this year for, for Springfield. And then the Chicago Wolves, who are the Carolina Hurricanes affiliate. Um, and so that series is tied one-to-one -one, moving to game three tonight as well in Springfield. So, um, but I think that matters though, because if you're trying to find coaches – I think the American League's the best place. I think junior is a huge jump for coaches. Yeah. I've seen, I, I just, I don't think coaches that come out of juniors to be a head coach in the NHL from all the friends that I know, they have a tough time handling the differences. Yeah. They treat the players like kids and it goes sideways and they don't have the same respect level. Um, I think college coaches probably have a little bit better chance in terms of the human element, but tactically it's different too, you know? So if you want your next head coach, I think you should be looking in the American League. We just haven't had, like I say, a, a couple full season to really let these guys sink in. So it's kind of the byproduct. And there's a lot of good free agents out there. You know, yeah. Pete DeBoer wins, like you said. Absolutely. And John Tortorella will give Philadelphia the chance to know what they have in that locker room. Yeah. So and he gets he gets results, too. You know, yeah. like it, it'll be interesting. I'm, I'm curious. You know, Cassidy, I thought was a good fit in Boston or I'm sorry, in Vegas. I like that fit. Yep. Barry, Barry Trotz, the longer this goes, the more I think he may not, he's not going to end up coaching. I don't know what to expect right now. I know. So, yeah. Some interesting decisions that yeah. we still make in the coaching front, Scotty. I th I'm here's what I, I'd love to. And again, it, it's like I, when you see the makeup of the NHL and what are we at? Usually it's between 25 and 30% of players are from outside of North America. Mm -hmm. And the fact that no European head coaches, essentially, I think two all time, 
Um, it's been years since there's been one. Um, Ralph Ralph Kruger being the last, so he was in. Yeah, although Ralph Kruger technically Canadian, although he came out of a European background. So. Oh, you got me on the technicality. I yeah, just, that. I, yeah, you're yeah, you're right though. <laughs> Ralph Kruger's interesting though because he. He sort of straddles that line. He's Canadian. I was thinking more of Alpo Suhonen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's the last. And, and anyway, I just I'm I'm curious to see. I'm just curious to see at some you know at some point because why wouldn't you right like why wouldn't you? But it, it has to be in your wheelhouse. You have to, and I think I'm with you on the American Hockey League because you, you uh, it, to me it's it's more applicable, right? The schedules yes. are very similar, you know we'll go into the fact that they don't all play the same number of games in the AHL, but anyway, basically they play an NHL schedule. They're like an NHL franchise. They're, they're built like an NHL team. So I think that is a legitimate way to say, can you, can you do this job? So, um, all right, before we get to Emily, I, it is time as it, uh, as it is every week when you and I chat to remind people that DoorDash is the proud sponsor of the nation network of podcasts, restaurants, and more delivered right to your door. Maybe you're thinking of doing a little door dash to get ready for game four in Tampa on uh, Wednesday night. Um, and just before we get to Emily, I, I throw the, the, the floor open and anything else just before we get to Emily that you make, want to make sure that we get to as we, uh, as we plow through this episode of the suitcase and the scribe. Well, you know, I think the most important thing on our plate is game four that's coming up here. And, you know, previewing that, I'm curious to see how the two teams make any tactical adjustments, specifically Colorado, to what the Tampa Bay Lightning did. And I I think that for me, the most important factor has just been the gutsy performances that we've seen. Nick Paul, our suitcase inscribed alumni, I mean, leaves the game, gets hurt. I don't think he's coming back. Scores a goal, stays in. Perry, Bogosian, Hagel. I mean, Kucherov, like all hurt. Now, apparently Kucherov has been said that he's good to go for game four. We think that's a surprise for me, but there's still no Braden point. Um, and I almost wonder at some point, you know, does can Colorado manage to stay head above water without the injuries? Cause it's hit Tampa right now. Yeah. Um, and I think that'll be really interesting to see. The one thing that I think the avalanche haven't done well is to keep dumping the puck to Vasilevsky and letting them handle it. Yes. Put that puck in the corner, boys, give yourself <laughs> a chance to forecheck, you know? So um, I, I'm curious about that. I'm also curious to see how Colorado handles the moment tonight, because yeah. I don't think that they were on top of their game in the third period. I thought Corey Perry and Pat Maroon drove them crazy. Andrew yep. Cogliano went bananas and took three minor penalties. That shouldn't happen from a veteran player. So um, for me, that's what I'm looking forward to. Yeah. Uh, last night was a nice little break with the awards, but let's get on with the show. Let's get on with the show. I'm with you. I, I'm, I am, I'm wondering, you know, we, we talk about the war of attrition. That is the playoff run. And I uh, wonder, you know, Kucherov, can he play? I, I, I got to tell you, I hated the hit from taste. I thought it was sneaky, dirty. Yeah. I hated the cross check on the hip. To me, that's a play that's designed to hurt. Uh, I'm sorry. It's I, I know he's not, that's not his reputation as a player. I thought that was a, I, I, and I know that Kucherov can be equally sneaky and dirty. So I'm not excusing any past behavior in that specific moment. I thought it was a sneaky, dirty play by taste. Um, and that's if Kucherov is, 
a, if he can't play, that's obviously huge. But even if he's, if he's at 80% or whatever, as you mentioned, Nick Paul clearly laboring as that game went on, yeah. we'll see whether the, you know, the 48 hours helps him there, but you know, you, and Braden point, honestly, I thought was, and I, I sound terrible. Say He was not very good in games one and two, mm-hmm. and uh, they're a better team with him out of the lineup. If he's not hundred percent, that's just the way they are. So I just wonder how that will play out as the series goes along. If Tampa can extend it, you know, at what cost and, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, as the series goes along, as you point out, and it looks maybe Kadri getting closer to coming back. And anyway, yeah, that's my, Evan slow, man. It's not going to be a sweep. We know that. <laughs> All right. As promised, let's, uh, let's have my conversation with uh, Emily Kaplan uh, here on the suitcase in the scribe. All right. Uh, as promised off the top of the show, uh, so happy to be joined by Emily Kaplan, a uh, long time hockey scribe. And now, star of stage screen and ESPN. Uh, but uh, Emily, it's so great that you can take the time to hang out with us. I can't imagine what your schedule has been like having followed you from afar throughout the playoffs. But be- before we get that, I have to ask you the most important question. I've been thinking about this since I knew you were going to join us. When was the last time you were at Cadillac ranch in suburban Bristol, Connecticut? I- tell me that. Um, I've never been to this Cadillac ranch. None of the cool people take me there. They take me to West Hartford. They take me to Southington, but you've got to tell me where do the cool kids hang? <laughs> See, I'm disappointed because I sort of have imagined because as, as you know, back in the day, uh, Pierre Lebrun and Katie Strang and, and the ESPN hockey group used to go to Cadillac ranch, which is on the very edge of the ESPN campus in Bristol. And, um, we've had many adventures in there. In fact, Pierre has broken a number of trades from Cadillac ranch. And I sort of imagined, I don't know you and Steve Levy and maybe Linda Cohen and Bucci, maybe line dancing there. And I'm a little <laughs> disappointed it never happened. So I'm a little disappointed line dancing hasn't happened period. <laughs> Well, you, so you must go. And whenever you get to Cadillac Ranch, I don't even know if it's still open, frankly. So next time, if it ever happens, you get there. I want to I want a picture. I want a text. Um, but you've manifested I, I, it. I'll do yeah. it. It's happening. No, but I, I will tell you, it's been so great to watch you throughout this playoff run because it just strikes me as uh, a role that is so different than, you know, I mean, you you grew up you know, hot run rubbing shoulders with the hockey scribes and the ink stained wretches. And, and I wonder if you can take us back to when ESPN came to first came to you and said, this, this is the role we want you to perform for us. This is the, the kind of stuff we want you to do. It, it was it different than you thought it was going to be walk us through when that first comes to you, what goes through your mind? Because it strikes me that it's a world apart from what you were used to. It is. And, you know, what's interesting is you were just talking about that as like when ESPN comes to you and outlines this role and those conversations actually never happened. (laughs) Um, It's really wild. Like when we got the rights, I, you know, was trying to be proactive and I called the big bosses and I was like, hey, you know, sideline reporting is something I'd be really interested in. I'd love if you'd like consider me for a game or two. Maybe I could try it out this year and see where we go. And then um, 
I think I found out like secondhand that I was going to be on the opening night broadcast um, as a sideline reporter in between the benches. Um, I know I should be saying rig side. I think we're just so conditioned to sideline here in the U.S. <laughs> it's all right. I knew what you yeah, were talking I know. about. <laughs> I'm a hockey girl, though, I promise. Um, so, yeah, like it just it's one of those things that's kind of happened organically as it can. Um, you know, it just kept getting more and more assignments Then all of a sudden midway through the season, it was outlined to me, you're on this A broadcast crew with Ray Ferraro, Sean McDonough. And then at that point it started to crystallize for me when we have the Stanley cup on ABC, like I'm part of that broadcast. And yeah. that to me is a little bit of a mind fuck. I keep saying that, but it's so true. Um, because I was a writer. Um, I always wanted to be a writer. I had my dream job at 23 at Sports Illustrated, writing long form stories. Um, when I got to ESPN TV, just organically became part of my repertoire. Um, it's yeah. never something I really sought out, but I understood the importance of it. And now I'm just kind of embracing it as this new challenge. And it's exciting to me. It's flexing different muscles. Uh, and I really, Scott, I'm just trying to enjoy the ride and, and not think too much about it. Yeah. Well, I'm curious because I mean, as you, you know, as your role at ESPN has evolved and you've been on lots of panel shows and around the horn, like those kinds of that kind of TV, it again, what do I know? But it strikes me as being very different than, okay, here you are, you're in, you know, you're live. Here's the, you know, you're doing the coaches, you're talking to players between periods. What's, what's that transition been like? You know, like the panel stuff is is way different, I would think. And what's what kind of muscles have you had to flex to, you know, to have a comfort level and to, to grow into this new role? Yeah. You know, sometimes I do a lot of times I feel like my background as a writer has been so helpful because I have such limited time, especially in a game broadcast. My biggest fear, our biggest fear is talking over a goal or talking over significant action and robbing the view of that moment. And yeah. so when they toss to me, I have to be so economical with my words. And that means editing to the nth degree. Um, you know, we're talking about seconds and, and words that we can chop off, um, really nitpicking there. So I think I've really flexed those muscles doing this. Um, just the confidence of not sounding robotic or rehearsed and, and making it more conversational because sometimes even if it is conversational, it's a game broadcast and you have to present it in a certain way. And as you can tell, I talk pretty fast and I'm conversational and I want to make sure that everyone understands what I'm saying so that my words have impact. Um, so just speaking with more confidence and authority is something that I really had to flex. Um, and then just adjusting to the visibility of it, but that's a different monster. Yeah. Well, we'll get to that, but, um, I don't think I could ever do that because if you've ever read my copy, I can barely clear my throat in a thousand words. So I'm not sure I would be fit for that kind of role, but you and I ran into each other early in the first round. I was in Raleigh, uh, hurricanes, Boston, and you had just come from the triple overtime game, game one in New York at MSG Penguins Rangers. And that was just the start is there a way to describe what your routine and what your schedule has been like from the start of the playoffs? Because it, it has to have been absolutely grueling. Yeah. There's no way to describe it, Scott, because there is no schedule or routine. Um, you know, we're here in the Stanley cup final. I don't anticipate going home until the Stanley cup is awarded. And that means since the beginning of the playoffs, I will have been home at my apartment in Chicago for a total of two and a half days. Um, not exactly ideal. My plants all hate me. There's one lone survivor. Shout out to the ZZ plant. You guys do great work. I uh, never need to water it. But um, 
so, you know, we're flying in from city to city, even on off days. Um, I feel like I never really get an off day. Um, you know, if we're traveling, for example, when I had to travel from Denver to um, Tampa, second I get in, I take a 30 minute nap, I go to the arena to do a couple TV hits. So um, every day it's, it's work, but like, I can remind myself that like, you're 31 years old, someone's playing you to travel around the country, follow the Stanley Cup final and broadcast it to a national audience. Like, it's pretty sick. I can't do too much complaining. <laughs> no, and but as you know, reporters do complain. And and uh, having having been a griper about airline schedules and trying to make availabilities and and stuff, it it does. I mean, it does. You know, it does grind you down a bit. It, I mean, it grinds the players down. That's why they call the whole thing a war of attrition. So I understand that. And I, I'm curious about the mechanics of what you're doing, and especially with the coaches, because. It strikes me again, depending on where you're at, you may be on the bench or next to the bench with John Cooper or, but you may be physically remote from Gerard Gallant or whatever. What has that, like, it strikes me, there's a lot of permutations. And what's that been like to try and factor that into, as you were describing earlier, condensing and making sure you're doing, you know, in a very limited time, having a, a conversation, those extraneous things, what's that been like to deal with? Yeah. I mean, I think kind of in the Zoom era and the pandemic, we've all gotten used to having conversations when you're not physically with someone. Like right now, if this was old times, I feel like you and I would be sitting at the Cadillac Ranch recording <laughs> this um, and having a great time. But instead, we're over a Zoom screen. Um, you know, the mechanics of why John Cooper, I interviewed him and Rod Brindamore on the bench and Derek Bednar, whereas Gerard Gallant was on a headset. Those are things that are negotiated by my bosses, the team and the league. There's some coaches that feel comfortable doing certain things, others that don't building amenities that are difficult for me physically to get to the bench. So I just show up where I'm told to show up and I want to make sure that I make the most of that interview period. Um, You know, I think the bigger challenge is that each coach is different. And, you know, if you listen to Cooper, he's down three, nothing. And I can get on the bench and ask him about why his team is down three, nothing. And he'll give an insightful and articulate and engaging answer. There's some coaches like Gerard Gallant who don't necessarily want to um, divulge much to the media at all. And you're just pulling teeth, just trying to get something out of them. And I have nothing against Gerard. We actually have a great working relationship. He was so pleasant. I really enjoyed getting to know him these playoffs, but He's just not someone ever who's going to get something in the media. So that to me was the bigger challenge more so than the logistics of where I'm doing it. Yeah. It's funny. I, and I, I emote and I, you know, watching you every night and understanding the backdrop, right? I mean, the whole notion of let's take a break from the most important game of the season to have a little chat. I do want to embrace John Cooper almost every night because he is so, I, well, you just, we just know John Cooper and he is who you'd expect him to be. And I'm so glad that he, that he helps you because it strikes me that that would be important, but have no, been- I am. Um, and I just a side note there. And yeah. this also goes into the logistics. You know, when we had Stanley Cup final media day, I finally got to see John. Um, and I just covered him the whole last round. I said, John, like, I just wanted to thank you for making me look so good in these interviews. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, of course. Like, you know, I think he gets it on a big picture level of why we do it because it promotes his team. It promotes the sport. It gives you something to look at. And he's like, yeah, no problem. Emily. It's just two issues. One, you're really short. Two, you're wearing a mask in a large arena. It's very hard to hear you. And I think that's his biggest struggle, honestly, is that it is really hard. And if you watch it, you know, he's leaning in so close and optically, it's kind of funny. Uh, but it's challenging. 
Yeah. Now, for everyone who doesn't know, that's mandated by the NHL, correct? The the fact that you have to wear the mask during those it interviews? Is. Yeah, it is. And um, I wish that I could somehow make that a PSA for everybody who wants to yell at me and think that I'm making some political statement. And even if I was wearing it by choice, whatever. But um, yeah, it's mandated by the NHL. That's why I wear a mask when I interview coaches and players and not at other times. <laughs> is there a moment, is there a mo- moment in ice? Maybe it's the coaches, but maybe it's players in between periods or whatever. Is there a moment that you're like, that was, that was really cool or interesting or dramatic or like, is there one that sort of, that you take away and you're like, well, you know, I'll always remember the, the playoff run of, of 22, you know, this will always come to mind. You know, you mentioned that triple overtime game. And I think maybe my most viral moment of the year, or my best line of questioning um, was when Louis Domingue came in as the hero. And I interviewed him after he said he had quite the meal. Cause I was just curious, honestly, Scott, at that point, I was so hungry myself. I didn't bring appropriate snacks. Um, so I was like, what did the boys eat? And he's like, I actually quite the meal. So I asked what you have. And he said, spicy pork and broccoli, which then became a cottage industry for like two yes. weeks as, you know, we all get obsessed with these things and then forget about them two weeks later. So I think I'll always remember that. And it was also a really good lesson for me journalistically, just about the power of a follow-up question. Um, yeah. Because if I didn't ask that one follow-up question, I don't know if we ever would have gotten that answer. Now, that's a good one. And I, I do love, uh, I love how you, when you talk to the players that you always say thank you in their native language. Do you ever get it? I always have the Finns and the Swedes, not as a nation mixed up, but the very few words I know, sometimes I mix them up. How did this happen? And I think it's a wonderful touch, by the way. So thank you. You know, I did it because I, I feel like I'm so cognizant of the fact that it's really difficult for these guys to come over to North America adjust to our lifestyle, but not only that, give a full interview in their second language and not feel completely confident in it. And, you know, but they're putting themselves out there and it's hard work and it's brave. So I'm like, this is the smallest gesture I can do just to show a little bit of respect. Um, You know, you know, but being around the media, like I love the NHL media, especially at these events, because we get the Frenchies and the Finns and the Swedes. (laughs) And, you know, we get to know, you know, the journalists that cover them, the people of the sport, why these athletes are so important back home. Um, So that's how I learned all the languages, honestly, is just being around these other journalists. Um, Shout out to Jonathan Lindquist, by the way, who's there with me in the interviews, because a funny story is the first time I tried saying um, thank you in Swedish to Mika Zibanejad. It's just tech, tech. Um, And I don't think Mika really picked up on it at the end of the interview because like he wasn't expecting it. He kind of looked at me funny and left. And then so Jonathan told me, you know, you should probably just say thank you very much. Text a Mika which, you know, he at least would recognize it a bit more. But Jonathan, the last three times I've seen him, I've just made him practice with me, text me, get to make sure that I have the pronunciation correct. Because um, I once tried it on Victor Hedman and he was just staring at me like, fuck. Um, and I was like, I, I messed that up, didn't I, Victor? He's like, yeah, he totally did. So it's a challenge. That's glorious. So I, I, I mean, to me, it's about, it's the humanity of it, right? And you mentioned... No, they're, these are human beings and many of them are far from home. So I, I love that. Uh, you alluded to it earlier. The, I mean, this is a different profile, right? I mean, it, you know, as, as much as writing for ESPN and writing for SI and doing the panel shows, and this is a different kind of profile and a different kind of, you know, sort of fake outward presence or whatever, however you want to describe it. What has that been like? And, and my sense of it is that it, it, it may have 
it may not all be cherries, but what's that been like for you? Yeah, again, kind of like this job, it wasn't something that anyone ever outlined for me and therefore I never really prepared for or or thought how I was going to handle it. Um, it's been strange. I think it's probably the best way to say it because I'm someone who in general is an oversharer. Like, you know me as my personality. I feel like I kind of like to show up authentically. I am who I am. I'm kind of quirky. I'm fun. I, I like to joke. And, you know, on TV, I don't necessarily present that, right? I have to, you know condense all my words into very small reports. I have to be a reporter. And the biggest challenge around it is that there's millions of people watching me and they form a judgment of me based off what they yeah. see on TV. And I'm like, well, that's not who I am or you don't actually know me. Um, but I feel like people now think they know me because I've become this yeah. noun or a thing. And that's, it's just kind of weird walking down the street and you see someone kind of look at you and I'm like, are they staring at me? Am I doing something weird? Is it going to be captured on camera? Things like that. Yeah. I still very much feel like a D-list celebrity. I don't want to overstate this at all, but especially being in hockey cities and around this event, um, you know, there are people who recognize you and you're just cognizant of that. They stare at you, they take photos of you. Um, and it does feel a little invasive. Have there been, I, I would like to think, and not, maybe I'm a Pollyanna, but I would like to think that there have been some, maybe some unexpected positive elements of that. Maybe people you've run into or young women or boys or whoever it is, but uh, have there been those moments where you're like, okay, that's, that outweighs whatever kind of creepy or negative parts of it there might be. Have you had those moments too? Absolutely. Like, and you mentioned young women, those are the ones that resonate with me the most. Um, like I was in Denver and I was out at a bar and this girl came up to me and she worked for the avalanche in one of their media departments. And she just said, I wanted to you know, say hi to you. I just really love the way that you carry yourself. You're such a role model. And for me, that was just the kindest thing anyone could say. And just knowing that there are women who see me on TV and they've never seen someone like me on TV or someone that came from my path, but they see me again, showing up authentically and doing it the way I want to do it. And with confidence and figuring it out on the go and trying really hard and working really hard and gaining the respect of these guys. Um, like that to me makes it all worth it and is really, really cool. Um, and I cherish, especially when I hear compliments like that. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, I've definitely received a few, especially from young women. And, and that to me, um, is really gratifying. Yeah. Uh, have you thought about what it's going to be like to, you know, that whenever it is, maybe it's in game five, maybe it's in game seven when that, when it's when, when you're there, you're used to recording the moment of the cup and the celebration and all those kinds of things in a different media and in a different platform. Have you thought about what it's going to be like when the when you're part of that cup delivery and the all, this, all that kind of stuff? Have you thought about what that's going to be like? No, <laughs> um, right, I haven't. You know, one of the things that's drilled to us at ESPN is we're there to document the game. And um, this, especially the Stanley Cup, when it's awarded, it's such a significant piece of the NHL's history um, that this is something that will be viewed 5, 10, 25. Who knows what footage will be used years from now? And so I'm definitely cognizant of the gravity of it. And I want to make sure that we honor that moment and we make sure that we celebrate that team and those players and that coaching staff and management that made it all happen. But um, I think if you prepare too much or think too much, you're not just living in that moment. So I have no idea how the series will end, where it'll end, who it'll end with. But um, I just want to make sure that when I'm there, I'm just documenting whatever's happening to the crowd at the moment, doing the best I can. And hopefully that represents it well in history. Uh, I have no doubt that you will handle it with the absolute 
professionalism we've seen all uh, all year from you. I'm, I'm so pleased for you, Emily, and I'm really thankful that you had the time to come and chat with us. I know how crazy it is in the middle of this final, and but it, to me, it's a, it's a great story, and I think it. I mean, you've provided great insight into you know, something that millions of people are watching and, you know, wondering how, how does that stuff all happen? So thank you for coming and hanging out. Treat. Scott, as you know, I was incredibly difficult to pin down and a little flaky at times, but I wanted to make sure I made this a priority because I appreciate you so much. And when I first got into hockey media um, about four years ago, you know, you had just left ESPN and it was really ugly. I mean, they fired their hockey department of you and Pierre and Katie and left as well. And Craig left. And I kind of felt like a scab coming in and I was new to this community. And I'm always so grateful that you and Pierre were so welcoming to me and you were always so kind and you just, you know, introduced me to everyone and made me feel welcome. And that's what I learned about the hockey community. So I always have such a great spot in my heart for you. You are the man and I love you. Oh, that's so sweet. And yeah. Anyway, I, I feel the same way. About Sorry, the hockey. not to get too cheesy on you at the end here. <laughs> no, but. it's it's very kind of you to say that. And uh, I know from I, I just know everyone in the hockey world is rooting for you. And all right. Continue to knock it dead. I hope that uh, we'll see each other maybe in Montreal to draft or whatever. And we'll we'll be able to actually have a, a real live uh, drink together or whatever. But uh, thanks again for coming and hanging out. It's been outstanding. Honestly, Scott. Cannot wait to see you in person. I know we'll have a good time. All right. Good Appreciate you. All right, my friend, as I say, it was nice to uh, have Emily on board and especially because she said nice things about me. So that's, that's all I care about. That's the only me. reason you ever get anybody, Scott. <laughs> Self-ed, self-congratulations. That's right. It's just a caveat. Last words, my friend, we've got game four coming up. Uh, who knows where we'll be at, you know, Quite possibly when we uh, next time you and I chat, Stanley Cup champion, we'll be talking about the draft. But uh, um, as always, been great to hang out with you uh, this week. And if you've got final parting words or thoughts, the floor is yours. Well, I think that at this point, after a couple of high scoring affairs, I think that a nice two to one or three to two overtime game would sure be a lot of fun this evening. I think I'd be ready to bunker in and make some popcorn and maybe go to a second overtime. That would be fun. I'd like to see some drama. I don't want another blowout, Scott. So let's hope for that. Let's hope for a long series so that when we come back next week, we have plenty to talk about and potentially the hoisting of a Stanley cup. Sounds like a good plan. My friend, as always, good work by you. Great to catch up. We'll talk next time. Thanks for listening to The Suitcase and The Scribe, a member of the Nation Network of Podcasts and delivered by DoorDash. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to never miss an episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.